So we're going we're gonna to visit Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to use a lot of different, different texts this morning. And I told you that I wanted to, I know we're, we're trekking through the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's just more that I want to deal with as we, as we get to this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, uh, specifically Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. I really want to unpack that next week. So something that would be very helpful to me as someone trying to present truths from that section, if you become familiar with that this week, just read and reread Matthew chapter 7, or specifically Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, and just, just meditate on that text where Jesus is saying, listen, you know, I'm talking to those who are my own. I'm talking to those who belong to me. This is, this is to whom this is written. He says, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. The Lord's not playing this colossal cosmic game of hide and seek. He's not out to hide from you. If he were, you would never find him, right? This is not the interest that God has. Yet his interest is that he might be found. The scripture says, seek the Lord where he may be found. You know, and that's the idea behind this is God wants to be found. A father wants his child to desire him. A father wants his child to delight in him. And it's there in that delight that you receive the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So make it your practice and ambition this week that you might not only ask, but you might persevere by seeking and that you might show persistence in your knocking and that you continually pursue the Lord. Because if you want to get a response out of God, there's an element of persistence and perseverance this, this one-stop shop kind of a mentality to prayer isn't necessarily a good idea to say, you know what, I have this issue that comes up in my life or something, so I'll entertain the notion of prayer now, and then when something else comes up, I'll entertain that notion later. But in reality, he's like, it is your privilege that I've given you to have access to the divine. It is your privilege. It should be your joy. It should be an establishment of hope for you that you can not only ask me, but have me hear you, have me respond to you, and not only respond, but respond in such a way that gives you what is good, that gives you what is best. So this is what we'll look at next week, the uniqueness of the relationship that we have to the Father. But as a precursor to that, I just want to talk about the uniqueness of the Father as it is. We talked about the holiness of God years ago. I think it was still when we were meeting in my living room. So most of you were not there. So I'm going to revisit this today because I want this to kind of help guide you throughout the week as you consider the, the uniqueness of the relationship that you have to God. I hope this sermon as well as next week's sermon is going to be of tremendous encouragement to you. But when we talk about the holiness of God, this is a weighty, weighty issue. And I want to just say this right out of the gate. This is not a time to be flippant. This is not a time to say, well, you know, it's just another holiness, you know, talk. You know, God considers his holiness. We're talking about the essence of God. We're talking about that which categorizes every attribute that God has. God is holy in his love. God is holy in his justice. God is holy in his mercy. He's completely other. He's completely set apart. He's like no other in who he is. And here's the kicker. At the end of all things, he says, and I want you to be holy as I am holy. So this pertains to you very much. You know, Tom came this morning and helped kind of start training us as MC leaders and here's what you need to consider is that although there are facts that you can learn about God, Tom talked on that this morning, yeah, we can fill our lives with a bunch of facts, but unless you know the Savior, that's, that's the game changer right there, knowing a lot of facts versus knowing him intimately. So understand that there, this is not just a, oh, I'm going to receive a bunch of information regarding God's character, but there's a part where this is a, this is a give and take, this is a two-way street because God is saying, I'm revealing my character to you. I'm giving you facts. I'm giving you who I am. I'm pulling back the curtain. I'm making revelation to you because your response is mandatory. And that response is that you would in kind be holy as I've shown myself to be holy. So that's why we don't want to disconnect. We don't want to disconnect from this talk today. 
You know, because this weighs heavily on you, and there's a great, great expectation on you if you consider yourself to be a child of God. So we're going to just walk through uh, a little bit of the holiness of God, and I fully understand that I can't do this justice. And this is not a false humility. I'm sure that any pastor that stands before a congregation or any kind of audience would say the same thing. I can't do it justice, and it's absolutely true. You know, we're no better, no worse than any of you here. We're just happen to be this happens to be our call versus making tires for a living uh, or 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 serving and protecting. You know or making me cookies, or whatever, you know, it's whatever, thank you again, by the way, fantastic cookies, Um, whatever your calling is, that's your calling, ours just happens to be, we have to give you, we are privileged to give you the divine word of God. So I want to take you to the first text, and that's Exodus chapter uh, chapter 15. Now, you can turn with me there if you'd like, I'm going to kind of paraphrase this text, and then I'm going to hone in on one specific verse, but this is such a strong verse that argues for the holiness of God. And I'll just kind of share the story with you. You understand that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. He wrote the law. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And we find some interesting stuff regarding the character of God as we see the life of Moses unfold. And this is a major crossroad for Moses. All right, this is, this is huge. All right, you've got this guy from the land of Midian, and God has set him apart, interestingly, right? He set him apart for a divine task to lead God's people out of bondage. I mean, this is a major deal. And Moses is, like many people in the Bible, a least likely candidate for the job, okay? He had problems with speech. Either it was a speech impediment or he got really anxious or really nervous in front of people, you know, like a little boy in front of a girl that he liked. He just can't get his words out and he always seems to say the, the dumbest thing possible, you know. Uh, it, maybe he was that way. I don't know. But he had to have his brother Aaron. God graciously said, okay, you go with your brother Aaron and he'll kind of be your mouthpiece, you know, since you kind of botch everything up, Aaron will be that for you. Okay, okay, but Moses gave all of his excuses. Well, what, what was he fighting against? What was he trying to make all these justifications for? And that was so that he wouldn't be the man that God would send. But God came to Moses. He said, you're the man that I'm calling out. You're the man that I'm going to send here. So here's how the story goes. Moses arrives at this burning bush, an odd sight to see, right, this bush that's on fire. Not just a bush that's on fire, but a bush that's on fire, and the fire's not consuming the bush itself. He's thinking, that's kind of weird. If that's not strange enough, the fiery bush begins to talk to Moses, okay? That's indication, too, that this is a weird scene. So the bush starts to talk to Moses, and then the Moses says, this, I'm God. He says, remove your sandals, remove your sandals, because this is uh, the place that you're standing is holy ground. So God and Moses have this dialogue, and this is what we've been taught since we were little bitty. This is a story that probably, well, everyone I'm sure knows here, and most people across the world may even know this story, as far as those who have heard the Bible and know biblical narrative. This is just a popular vacation Bible school. This is something we act out, you know, at, in plays. This is, this is a big deal. This is a major, major turning point in the, in the divine narrative. And so Moses and God are having this dialogue, and he said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you over here to Egypt, and you're going to tell Pharaoh to do such and such, let my people go. And Moses is like, well, well, that sounds all well and good, but you know I'm dealing with Pharaoh, right? And you know who I am. You know, I can't speak very clearly. I'm just uh, kind of a nobody, you know, and, and you're expecting me to do this? He said, absolutely. You're the man. You're the one that's going to go, and you're going to do those things. And so this dialogue goes back and forth, and we understand that Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, God said... And Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, by the way, and, and, and this kind of goes back and forth. And he comes back, and he gives his excuses. Well, Pharaoh's doing this. And what, what happens at this point is very, very interesting. So if you, if you look in chapter 15, and we start looking at verse 11, this is the rhetorical question that comes up. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you? Because Moses is wondering, who, who do I say sent me to Pharaoh? Who, who, who do I say sent me? You know, Pharaoh doesn't know you, or we don't run in the same circles. Who can I say sent me so that I can have, you know, some, some potency behind my command, so that I can have some kind of strength behind my words or teeth to my bite? He says, who do I say sent me? Who is like you among the gods? Some worship Ashtoreth, and some worship Dagon, some worship Baal, so on and so forth. So this is a culture and a society of foreign gods. Keep in mind, these aren't real gods. These are false gods, right? Idols that have been manufactured into the image of man rather than God making us in his image. We'll get into more of that later. Uh, 
But he says, who's like you? Because you're not like him. You're not like him. Who, who is like you among the gods? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth has swallowed them. So Moses recognizes something. He recognized there's something distinct about God because, again, the rhetorical question is, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The answer being nobody. Who is like you, majestic in holiness. And he starts assigning credit to God for all of these wonderful, wonderful things. But something interesting happens in this big narrative, and that is when God says to Moses, okay, I'm going to give you the answer. Here's what you're going to tell Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, I am that I am, which is a, which is a very interesting designation that God gives to himself. But you can't miss it. I mean, you've heard this all of your life. Well, I am that I am. Maybe you've seen bumper stickers. I serve the great I am. You know, and this is, this is imperative because what God is doing, instead of saying, well, I'm like a king, instead of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm like a Pharaoh, I'm like someone in high authority so that Pharaoh can just get a, a small snapshot of who I am, he says, I'm completely other. He has a very unique title that is exclusive to himself. Interestingly, Jesus later calls himself I am. Talk about the divinity of Jesus, right? But here in this text, he says, tell him I am, because there's no one like him. And that's holiness. He's distinct. He's cut off. He's separate. There's nothing that you can compare God to. He's not not like a king. He's not like a person in power. He's not like those things. That's an unfair designation. I get when we use this anthropomorphic type language to try to explain, okay, we'll use human terms to try to define God, but it's impossible to do, okay? The scripture does that, right? He's like a lion because God is, is, is trying, or Jesus is like a lion. He's like a lamb, or he is the lamb. He is, he is a lion of Judah. That's, that's a type of language to help us understand, but God is saying, I am that I am. I'm, I'm beyond your comprehension, you know, I am the great I am. He says, you tell Pharaoh that. And what he's doing here is he's showing that I'm holy, that I'm separate. You know, that I'm, that I'm not just good. I'm not just above you. I'm not just your authority. I am in a league of my own. I'm in a category all of my own, a divine category that only exists for God. He's distinct. He's unique. He's dangerous. He's all of these things. He's not common, he's not ordinary, he's sacred. He's definitely not casual. It would behoove us not to be trite with him or flippant with him or his divine word or his commands or the pearls that he's given us. You would talk about going back to the struggle of digesting the reality that Jesus says that there are some that you might cease and desist giving these pearls to. There are some that you might for a season give the gospel and then I'm gonna tell you to move on and wipe the dust off your feet. It's rooted in the holiness of God. And in his holiness, we find that he is just like no other, that he is vengeful like no other, that he is wrathful like no other. And all these things matter. These are facts about the character and the nature of God. This is theology. Even Jeremiah says, some, you know, let a wise man, or, you know, let a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not, a, let, not, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast in his strength. He says, but let he who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that God would be known. And a part of knowing him is knowing that he's holy, that he's distinct. That's one of the fundamental elements of theology, fundamental elements of Christianity is realizing we serve a holy God that is like no other. Because why would we put stock in a God that's fashioned into our image? Why would we put stock in a God that we serve because we're safe from him? because he's not a danger to us. That's failing to realize his power, failing to realize that the scripture says, fear God for a reason. His very name is holy. You know that the, that the scribes, when they would, when they would record the, the scriptures, and I don't know when the last time I said this to you was, but here's something new if you haven't heard it before, but the, the scribes, when they were recording the scriptures, and that's how we end up with the Bible, is just these scribes over the years. They would take the original copies and they would write onto these manuscripts. And we have thousands, thousands of them that God is preserving, that God is protecting, and God is filling these men, you know, uh, filled, the, filled the authors, the original authors of the Holy Spirit, and God is preserving his word as these scribes. They write, they copy, they translate. And when they would come to the name 
and you can fact check this, when they would come to the name of Yahweh, they would take the writing instrument that they were using and they would discard it. They would get a brand new writing instrument and they would write that name. And when they were done writing that name, they would then discard that writing instrument. And let's say that the name Yahweh is used 500 times in the Old Testament. That's every single time and every single manuscript, thousands upon thousands of times that they came to the name Yahweh, they would get a new writing instrument. Why? Because they, they, they saw the name as so holy. They wouldn't even speak the name because their mouths, their lips, their tongue was not worthy of uttering the name Yahweh. What a perspective they have. What a what a recognition of the holiness of God. And this is exactly what's happening with Moses. This is exactly what God has said of himself. I am that I am. I'm completely other. I'm not common. I'm not ordinary. I'm not casual. I'm God. If you, if you consider the book of Isaiah, not Isaiah 6 this time, but Isaiah chapter 40, I want you to hear this. Isaiah 40 has some, some strong language but I want you to hear the end of it. I want to kind of work through just some of these, some of the statements that God is making. And this, this, when you're hearing this, what this does for you is it's revealing of God's character. It's indicative of who he is, and you hear some strong things, but understand that the justice you hear, the authority that you hear, this is like no other. This is not an earthly governing superpower that you're hearing. We're not liking this unto something that's on earth. This is a cosmic, universal, eternal, divine, governing power that is all sovereign, that is all knowing, that is all good. And listen to what Isaiah writes in chapter 40, verses 12 through 18. He begins and he says, so who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know what the hollow of your hand is? This little center of your hand. He's measured the great waters of the deep in the hollow of his hand. Now, we don't put God in spatial dimensions, but this is language to let us know that God is so separate. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? A span is to be the tip of your middle finger to your thumb. That's about a span. And it says, God has done these things. God has marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? What man gives counsel to God? Whom did he consult and whom and who made him understand? Who, who consulted, who did, who did God consult when he was making things? Who did God appeal to? When he saw fit to say, you know what, I'm going to spin everything in motion. I'm going to deem things what they are and what they're going to be. And who did he consult? Nobody. You and I consult people all the time. We consult WebMD when we're feeling ill. We consult Google when we want to get an answer to something. And we shouldn't trust that all the time, right? We consult one another. We consult medical practitioners because we're trying to find answers to these questions. We consult people because there's always a higher authority, and that stops with God. And it says, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. This is how insignificant the nations are. Not that God doesn't love the nations, not that Jesus didn't die for the nations. But in terms of how they compare to God and how completely other he is, it says they're a drop in the bucket. And then it says, behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor or its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Here we get to it, right? To whom then will we liken God? Who will you compare God with? And he's given this description. Who else, who else fits this description? Who else matches God? No one. Who else has measured the waters with his hand? Who, has, who else measured the heavens with a span and measured the great waters of the deep with his, with his hand? Who has done these things? Nobody. These are all re these rhetorical questions. Isaiah gets it as much as he can get it, I think, in that moment. He's like, I see it. 
This is after the beatific vision of Isaiah chapter 6, which we'll look at momentarily. But he sees this thing. He sees the glory and the holiness of the Lord as Jesus, I believe Jesus is sitting on the throne. He sees this, and it completely undoes him. Or he becomes undone, is what he says. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compares with him? Verse 19 says, an idol? A craftsman cast it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. But who are we going to liken God to? Nobody. You can't. Because the holiness of God prohibits any comparison by any other thing. You can't. But people like serving a false god. Why? You say, well, if you have this God, if this is the reality, and if God revealed himself in all these neat ways in the Old Testament, and maybe they saw things that, that we don't see. We have the hindsight and the privilege of Jesus. Maybe they saw a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire by night. Maybe they saw these great things. Maybe they were eyewitnesses to uh, later down the road in the narrative. Maybe they were you know, Noah and his family, you know, great witnesses to the flood. Maybe those who came after Noah, they have the flood in a not-too-distant memory, and they, wow, this is, this is wild. Like some of the students in here that uh, were maybe little bitty whenever uh, 9-11 happened, but you know it's real. You know, it's there. It's still talked about. It's a big moment in U.S. history. And these people are thinking back and saying, oh, man, these things, these things happened. You know, this is a, this is a big deal. And in this time, people serve to the gods, but why? Well, it's because serving this false god, because not only can a false god do nothing for you, but he can do nothing to you. So some people like to fashion a god in their image because he's not dangerous or he's not a threat to them. And I say this with, with caution. The Scripture does say it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing or it's a dreadful thing, depending on, tra- on your translation, to fall into the hands of the living God. That doesn't just apply to those who are out of Christ, right? If you die, it is a dangerous thing, right? There are bad things that happen to those who die without Jesus. But it is a fearful thing for a believer in this context to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because of his holiness, because of his completely separateness, his otherness, and all of these things, We have from that justice, we have mercy, all of these things. But what happens is God, in his holiness and his justice, and and, and he has to deal, he has to punish sin, he has to respond to these things. For those who are in Christ, what happened to David, who was a follower of God? What happened to David? David committed this sin with Bathsheba, and then the baby dies. The baby dies, what? As a direct consequence of, of his sin with Bathsheba. God kills the baby, and it says that in the text. It says that. It says this is what God did. This is how God responded. David was a follower of God, but David suffered the consequences of his action because God is holy. Moses suffered the consequences of his actions because God is holy. Moses, God said, I want you to speak to the rock. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses taps the rock with his staff, and that's what he did. And then later, God takes him on top of the mountain and says, I want you to look over at the promised land. They had gone 40 years. They had gone all this time trying to get to the promised land. And then all of a sudden, God says, I want you to come up to this mountain. I want you to see all these things. You will be buried before you get there because I'm not going to let you get there. And the reason he gives is because you did not regard me as what? As holy. This is what God says. He says, you didn't regard me as holy. So God takes his holiness seriously. He takes our response to his holiness seriously. He says, you didn't regard me as holy. So therefore, I won't let you into the promised land. But guess who got to go into the promised land? A bunch of sinners. And so what is God doing? Well, in God's separateness, in the distinctness that makes up God, that characterizes and explains God to a degree, he's revealing his nature. He's revealing his expectations. Why is it that God would allow a man who's trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling to the ground? Why would it, upon touching the Ark of the Covenant, why would God destroy him? Why would God do that? Because God's making a name for himself. God is saying, I told you that I am God. There is no other. I told you, obey my commands. Ananias and Sapphira did what? They lied. They lied. Have you done something worse than lie? I'm sure you have. Moses murdered. 
But that's not why God said you couldn't go to the promised land. He said, because you didn't regard me as holy, because of the rock-tapping versus speaking issue. This is a big thing. And in essence, a fire, so that God, so that God would show, this is who I am. I'm not being trivial about sin. They lie, and then Ananias comes through the door, and he is questioned about uh, taking some money that didn't belong to him when he was supposed to sell something. And he says, well, yeah, I did that, and he drops dead, just like that. Sapphira comes in later, and she stands there. The scripture says about three hours later, Sapphira comes in, and there are men standing at the door. And this is kind of a, it's a chilling part of scripture because uh, uh, Peter, I believe that's the, the, the right text, uh, they are being addressed, or she is being addressed, and the same question is posed to her that was posed to Ananias. Did you do such and such? Well, yeah. And he says, the same feet that buried your husband will be the same one that will bury you. And they're standing right outside the door. And she dropped. She fell. Why? Because God is holy. And God makes an example in his divine holiness and his divine justice. And this doesn't work like this for everybody. God hasn't zapped me yet, and I've done plenty of things, such as lie, you know, such as God maybe gave me an instruction that was like speak to the rock, but instead I tapped it, Right? God chooses in his perfections, in his moral perfections, he chooses where he's going to illustrate his, his, his holiness. There's a demand for justice. There's a relationship to justice that, God, that God's holiness has. Uh, James 2 says, if you've broken one of God's command, you're guilty of all of them. Just one, just one. His holiness demands that kind of retribution. That's why everybody's born into sin. That's why everybody is born and they're on the, they're on, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're separated from God. Because in Adam all of sin and his holiness demands that there be, that there be justice because of sin. So there's a relationship between God's holiness and God's justice. But there's also a relationship between God's holiness and humility, specifically our humility. If you consider God's holiness but you're, it doesn't bring you to a place of humility, then we've got problems Okay, you've got problems, and let me explain what I mean by this. It seems to be a trend in the scriptures. When God confronts people, the response is usually falling. Now, maybe God will send an angel, there's falling. Maybe God will send a representative, there's falling on their faces. In humility and in fear, by the way. Adam and Eve, well, uh, Moses fell to his face when he saw the burning bush. Why? Because he encountered the holiness of God. Isaiah 6, I told you we would go to that, so Isaiah 6, and Austin, Austin read this. Let me just kind of unpack this just a moment. If you didn't catch it when he was saying it, I want you to catch it now as I just highlight a few words or phrases that we, that we read here. Theologians like to call this the beatific vision because what Isaiah saw was basically reminiscent of Revelation 5 and Revelation 4, this worship scene that's taking place in heaven. And this is God's grace that he would let Isaiah see something like this. And Isaiah's response is humility. So listen to this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah was a good, I mean, uh, Uzziah was a good king, one of, the, one of the good kings of Israel. And so they're mourning the loss of Uzziah. And Uzziah has died and then Isaiah is given this vision. And a few things just to explain. He says he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. This throne obviously symbolizing authority, kingship, royalty. Sitting on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm sure you've been to a wedding. You ladies, maybe you're, you had a train on your, on your wedding gown. Maybe it was short. Maybe it was long. I know that today people do different types of weddings. Maybe they break from tradition, and maybe, you know, a woman might wear something other than a wedding dress, traditionally speaking. You know, she might wear whatever. You know, maybe a Star Wars outfit. Who knows? They've got some, some interesting things going on nowadays. Um, but traditionally speaking, there's a train. I know that my wife had a long train that flowed from her dress, and these bridesmaids would have to pick it up and carry you know, and this, uh, this, this train is a beautiful thing to see, but the train symbolizes royalty. Not that the bride is, let me be careful, not that the bride is royalty, but this is what it symbolizes here. Kings would wear this train, and some of these trains were long, some of them were shorter, 
But what we see in this is that there's definitely this train of his robe, and it did what? It filled the temple. And this is speaking towards the royalty and the kingship of Christ before Christ has even come, right? It says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And as they float there before him, these, these, these seraphim, okay, uh, I think the Hebrew literally means the burning ones, or ser- seraph means to burn. Uh, Matthew Henry articulates it this way, a commentator. He says that their, their purpose, their design was to burn, and he uses the word with bedazzling luster towards the sun. You know, kind of a kind of a neat way of expressing that. You know, try that out on some friends, you know, bedazzling luster. They'll probably enjoy that. But this is their purpose, is to burn in love and to represent the holiness of God. Why would they have to cover their eyes? Because he's so pure and he's so holy that they can't that they can't interact like Moses did. He's so pure and he's so perfect. He's so distinct. He's so sacred that they would have to cover their eyes. Now with two, they would fly, and the two, they would cover their feet. Now there's divided opinions. Both are fantastic. One opinion says they would cover their feet. Similarly to what happened in the book of Exodus, as Moses would remove the sandals from his feet because the ground was holy, they would say they would cover their feet because the presence of the Lord was holy. Some would say that the, that the, that the wings being down at the feet would change the posture of the angel to a bowing posture. Either way, either way, indicative of the holiness of our Lord. And then the song that they sang is, is, is the telltale sign of what this chapter represents. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that's what they have done. That's, that's what they do. Talk about, you know, a, a, a resounding song Talk about repetition in the good way. This is, this is their purpose. And when you back up and think, okay, this really is a testament of God's holiness because these angels were created for the purpose of doing that. And it wasn't that God is a megalomaniac or he's egotistical. It's that God, being God, recognizes that he is the greatest authority. And it is the privilege for the angels to worship him. And it is the privilege for us to worship him and, and to be made in his image. And these angels get to sing of God's holiness for eternity. And this is what they're doing. They're doing it in antiphonal song, by the way. They're singing back and forth. I don't know if you've ever been to, a, if you've ever been to a, some kind of basketball game or sporting event. You know, I remember pep rallies in high school. And at pep rallies, one side, uh, which uh, they, would, they would chant something, and then maybe we would chant it, and it would be this antiphonal back and forth. You know, you know who's going to win? We are. You know, it's all this fun stuff. Well, this is what they're doing. They're echoing back and forth. And the scripture says that the whole place, the foundation, is literally shaking, shaking with the glory of God. So you've got this scene that is just unbelievably characteristic of God and his complete separateness, his, his holiness. It says the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response. This is why I say there's a relationship that we should have with God's holiness and humility. He says, woe is me. He says, for I am lost. Or maybe your translation says, for I am undone, for I am ruined. Literally means I am unraveling. I am coming apart at the presence of God because I literally cannot stand. He was humbled before the presence of God. He says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah's response was humility because there's a relationship between God's holiness and and humility. John fell, at his, John fell as if dead when confronted with the living God when he was on the island of Patmos. He fell as if dead, the scripture says, when he encountered God. In Revelation 4, 8, it says that myriads and myriads gathered around the throne singing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Revelation 11, 16 through 24, the elders fall to their faces in worship of the Lamb. Why? Because there's an association with God's holiness and humility. In Leviticus 9, 24, God consumed Israel's offering with fire. And what did they do? They fell to their faces because God, God represented himself. And God showed that I am like no other. Because these people were in the presence of God. I think the holiness of God should change our perspective. I think when we think of holiness, it, it changes the way we see everything else. If you want a worldview shift, and you meditate and read and study and become well acquainted with the holiness of God. And then attached to that, realize the responsibility of therefore being holy as he is holy. And scratch your brain and say, how in the world do I do that? I don't, I don't measure up to that. You see, when, we're, when our view starts to change, when holiness causes our perspective to change, this is, this is what it looks like in your life. If you're, if you're asking yourself, okay, Alan, how do, how do, for application's sake, how do I know when this effect is taking place? How do I know when my perspective is, changes and here's, is starting to change? And here's one way. It's when sin is no longer viewed as something that is damaging to man, but something that's dishonoring to God. Because you understand there's a difference. If I sin, I always sin against God. Even if I'm sinning against my wife, if I, if I uh, just berate my wife, just one of the many ways to sin against my wife, if I berate my wife verbally, if I swing my fist and hit my wife, you say, well, clearly you've sinned against your wife. Yes, but I've sinned against God. Because God has said, here's my expectation for you as a believer. Here's my expectation for you as a husband. And you've fallen short on both accounts. So I've sinned against God as well as sinned against my wife. Now what holiness does is when I think, okay, I've sinned against my wife. I've damaged this relationship. If my focus is on that and I'm grieved by that, but I'm not grieved or even not as grieved about the fact that not only have I damaged this relationship to my wife, but sin has dishonored God. If that's the case, then you've lost perspective of holiness because God is absolutely distinct. And so sin naturally then is taken very seriously. So no longer, no longer, sin is no longer the choice of pleasure when we're considering holiness, but it's the loss of pleasure. If we have this great perspective that God is holy and he has this expect and he, he has this expectation and he wants me to be holy and he calls me to do that and I sin, we view sin as not the gaining of pleasure but the loss of pleasure. Maybe for you it's, okay, now when I have this right perspective, no longer am I sorry that I got caught but I'm sorry for the God-hating anti-Christ offense of my actions before a holy God. That's what I mean by the perspective changes. When you think on the holiness of God and think that he exists completely other and there's this expectation and that's the mantra of your life, then, then things start to change. Maybe it doesn't happen overnight. As we just fast forward just a little bit, maybe it takes asking, seeking, knocking. It requires perseverance. Keep pursuing the Lord. Keep pursuing greater knowledge of him. Keep, keep pursuing greater intimacy with him. And let that relationship flourish. Let it grow. Because again, as I said, when we were doing music, doing music, this is what God wants. This is what he delights in. His delight is your delight in him. God's holiness is, is not a thing to be trivialized. And here's where we get into some, some warnings, okay? Here's some, some warnings. I think it's pretty clear, you know, we see what happened with Moses. That's a warning to us. That God may. That's why it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God for a follower of Christ because you might end up like Moses. You might end up like Ananias or Sapphira. You might end up like, like, like any of these others that God decided you'll be the example for my glory, for my name, for my renown, for the display of my great divine character. You might be the example. And it's fair and it's right, by the way. Let's get, that, let's get that straight right now. If God says, okay, Haven Ridge, you're really trying hard, but I'm gonna take you all out right now. We still have nothing but an eternity's worth of thanks and praise to give to our God for a moment that we've existed outside of hell, let alone for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And then on top of that, 
get to experience the essence of heaven, and that's Jesus. So it's not to be trivialized. That's what it means when it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or it's a trivializing things can, that uh, falling into his hands can be a byproduct of that. And I think some ways that we trivialize and we have to be very careful is when our view of God is more, uh, is more as a homeboy, you know, more, he's more of a, of a brand to be marketed on t-shirts and bumper stickers than he is a divine God that rules and reigns all things. I think if we're not careful, if we're not careful, and parents do this all the time, they sacrifice parenthood, they sacrifice authority by embracing or they sacrifice these things on the altar of befriending their children. Well, I don't want them to hate me, I don't want them to resent me, so I'm just going to play this role of best buddy to them which means I'm not going to rebuke them, I'm not going to correct them. If I do, it'll be real light and all these kind of things. But the issue is you can't sacrifice that. And I think we run a risk of sacrificing who God is in our perspective, who God is in reality, when all we do is we say, you know what, I'm going to trivialize this, and he's just going to be my homeboy. Jesus is my BFF, you know, I, I, I see it all the time. Guitar picks. Pick Jesus. Because some religious organization is marketing Jesus. Is it this horrible thing? No, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, if you've got a Christian t-shirt, go burn it. I'm not saying that at all. You know, far from it. Far from it. If it's got horrible theology, yeah, you know, burn it. But that's not what I'm saying. Um, they've got to be careful about trivializing things. That's all. In other words, accessorizing Jesus. Accessorizing and saying, you know what? I'm going to let him be a part of my mantra. I'm going to let him be a part of my rhythms, a part of my everyday paradigm, rather than who he is dictating your rhythms, dictating your paradigms, dictating the mantra of your life. Here's what it looks like when you, when you don't fear God. Here's what it looks like when you trivialize and, and you don't regard him as holy. It looks like a sex-driven culture that promotes an antichrist agenda through every shred of media available. This is, this is what happens. And, and it's on our doorstep. It's on the channels as we turn. You know, a nation, a media, a culture that trivializes, if, if not outright rejects, trivializes, and Christians are in this camp, unfortunately, it trivializes who God is. It looks like mothers and fathers pimping out their daughters and sons and sacrificing the glory of God on the altar of idolatry and sensuality. It looks like an ever-increasing tolerance towards the things that God hates, that God has revealed here. It increasing tolerance towards those things and fading and, and, and a fading intolerance for ungodliness. So it's a tolerance for the things of the world, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a fading tolerance for things that are ungodly, or a tolerance for things that are ungodly. It looks like maybe, maybe, maybe today's youth, or in a specific context that I have been familiar with, where the phrase was, they get into these things that are bad, and it's just a season in their life, so it's called sowing their wild oats. And we, we say it's okay because it's a season. Get it out of their system. I've heard this before. It's just sowing their wild oats. Oh, everybody goes through this phase. They're going through a rebellious phase. Well, if you say you're in Christ, there's no room for rebellious phases. There's no justification. There's no acceptance for rebellious phases. How can I as a pastor and one of these youth come up to me and say, or a parent comes up to me and says, well, such and such is just, they're really having a hard time. They claim to be a believer, they're boasting in the name of Christ, and they're going to their schools, and they're saying, well, I'm in Jesus, I'm in Christ, I'm a follower. But everything in their life indicates that they're of the world. And then the parent wants to say to me, well, it's just a phase. They're just sowing their wild oats. All kids go through this. They have to experience these things to learn right and wrong. This is how they're going to gain wisdom and find out, okay, this is not the best trajectory. There's no room for that in the life of a Christian. 
It says these things must not even be named among us is what Paul says. He has something to say about those type of things done in secret. We don't even speak of those things. They're so horrific. You say, well, it's not murder. You know, it's not pedophilia that we're talking about. It's sin against a holy God. You understand? It's a big deal. Sin is a big deal. We can't categorize and compartmentalize and say, well, it's just this or it's just that. At least it's not that. No. James 2, again, one sin, no matter the sin, one renders you eternally guilty and worthy, a worthy recipient of God's unquenchable wrath that he relinquishes, that he pours out for an eternity because he's holy. So what do we do with this information? Let me just say this and we'll be done. How do we, how do we respond to this? So these are a lot of facts that I've shared with you about the character of God. And by the way, I just I want to say next week, we see these things, and it's so beautiful to me that God, as Father, He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not this, he's not a heavenly grandfather that wants to just give you every little thing that your heart could ever want, but he's not an old miser that wants to say no to everything. He's not that. There there are no words to capture the level of love and devotion and concern that God has for you and for me. We can't fathom that. Even as a dad, as much as I love my kids, I can't come close to even understanding what God has for me. I love it when my kids want to come to me. I love it when they lean on me. And I love it when they're leaning on me and not on their own understanding. Don't you know that God loves that? Don't you know that he delights in that? He's delighting when you are delighting in him. So it's a, such a unique relationship. And this God who is so separate, so sacred, so completely other, his command for us is to be like me. His command is, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. Leviticus 20 and 1 Peter. He said, 1 Peter 1.16, he says, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. So what do you do with that? How do you respond to those things? So why teach you facts about God's character? It's because in order to emulate something, in order to be like something, you need to know it. Not just know facts about it, right? Know it inside and out. I love movies, and there are Daniel Day-Lewis, Heath Ledger. There's so many of them that are considered method actors, right? They immerse themselves in a character. They study uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, his portrayal of Lincoln. Love Lincoln, whatever. Love him or like him, leave him, whatever is your position on Abraham Lincoln, because there's lots of different things written about him, right? Uh, uh, considered a great president, you know, I would say by the, by the general consensus of the U.S., right? But, but there's a lot of interesting things written about him. But Daniel Day-Lewis portrayed Lincoln in a fairly recent movie called Lincoln. And it was said that he spent months and months and months in character, the same is true, the same is said of Heath Ledger playing the Joker in, in, in Batman, that they would just immerse themselves in this character. There was a guy in the movie called The Pianist. I can't remember the actor's name, but The Pianist, uh, he plays a Jew. I think it's a, it's, it's a Jew who's also a Holocaust victim. And he moves, he sells everything. He adopts a lifestyle of, and he, he, he suffered starvation so that he could become so acquainted, as close as he could, with what they would have gone through so that he could accurately portray this character. This is method acting. But the way that they were able to give such, such a clear rendering of this, as close as they can without actually being that person, is because they immerse themselves. They don't just know facts about it. They know it inside and out. They know it intricately. Those who, uh, uh, those who play uh, like people with different disabilities or different handicaps. There are a lot of actors who will go to these places and they'll spend time with, they'll study, they'll hang out with and develop relationships with these people to learn all the way they think, the way they respond to certain things. And they invest so much time so that they can emulate them. And I use that illustration to say the same is true in regards to our command to be holy as God is holy. How are you going to emulate God unless you know him? Not that he's completely knowable. Not that we can reach this pinnacle and say, well, I know all there is to know. I'm ready to emulate. No. I think eternity will be spent continuing to gain knowledge and enjoying Jesus without, without hindrance. Learning God and without hindrance. I think we emulate him. I think we 
dive into a relationship with him and, 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 and find him, as he says, seek me where I may be found. We want our hearts to be unified with God, and we do that by pursuing him. I mean, it's not complicated. It's not complicated, and you will get out of it what you put into it. You can't emulate Jesus. You can't emulate God, the Father, God, the Son. You can't emulate unless you know him. And it's more than just knowing facts about him. So I'll give you the same challenge that I gave several weeks ago, and that is put it to the test. Put the scriptures to the test, not in disbelief, but saying, God, you've made these promises. You've called me to be this, and you gave me the template to do it. You've said, hey, if I just pursue you, these things will happen, that I'll be sanctified, that you're going to conform me to the image of Jesus. You know? You said, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. So we understand that this isn't just a one-way kind of a thing. This isn't consumerism. This isn't, I'm going to sit here, and I'm just going to somehow miraculously develop into this pillar of the faith. It's not how it works. It's time. It's effort. It's energy. In order to emulate something, you have to know it. You have to know it. And so the question then becomes, to you, is God worth knowing? Because the tale of the tape and whether or not God is worth knowing to you is the display of your life. And it just is. I hung out with my boss this weekend on a camping trip. Let me say this. And I was so, I was just so impressed with him. I mean, he's a sinner just like you and me. But his command of the scriptures, his love for the saints, his love for the, wor- love for the world as far as the world, knowing, knowing Jesus you know, his, his, his love for music that stirs his affections for Christ was just so overwhelming and it was so encouraging to me. And this is a man, this is a man that I believe is emulating God. And how is he doing it? Because he, is, he, has, he has bought in. He has given in and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm pursuing. I, want, I don't want to just know facts because I can pick up a book and, and, and dictate a lot of facts to you. I, I, I want to know him personally. And there's an intimacy that I saw in his life that didn't make me jealous, but it encouraged me because I'm like, I don't think I'm there. And I can have that. And that hope rests in the promises of God. And that gives me so much joy and so much hope. And his life is characteristic. His life is indicative of the fact that he treasures and that he values God. He doesn't just say it, it's evident in his life. So I would pray that this week that all of our efforts would be indications of our value that we have for God. Proven in our conversations, proven in our quiet moments, proven in how we respond to a spouse that maybe said something that we don't like, you know, proven, to, proven in how we deal with a child that's just about to break us backwards, you know, just that all of that becomes evident. And that's real life, right? That's real life. And our affections and our devotion to God is on display in all of those arenas, in all of those different contexts. Seek the Lord where he may be found, and we'll learn more about that next week. But let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed.